0: Gangary the podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com.
1: Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, I'm Matt Tullis. We've got a great show this week. We're going to open with a talk with Esquire Assignments Editor, Tyler Cabot, about the new Esquire Classic website. The new site has just launched and contains digital copies of every Esquire ever published. In our second segment, we're going to give you something we haven't done before, and that's a full-length story. We've got The Ghosts I Run With by yours truly, which ran on SB Nation Longform in April. Finally, in required reading, Dee Rossi offers her take on Brian Ives' how Bruce Springsteen got his groove back. Now, on with the show. This week, I talk with Tyler Cabot. Cabot is an articles editor for Esquire magazine, He also directs the magazine's research and development. He spearheaded the revamping of Esquire Classics, which was just relaunched and includes, for a subscription, access to every issue Esquire has ever published. Cabot says that today he is focused with finding new ways to tell and sell stories, and that is evident in Esquire Classics. On that new site, you can read Gay Talisa's landmark celebrity profile, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, and you can read it as it appeared in the April 1966 issue of the magazine. You can also read a short behind-the-scenes piece on the difficulties of reporting that story, and you can read the letters to the editor that the piece spawned. From Ernest Hemingway to F. Scott Fitzgerald to Chris Jones and Tom Junod, it's all there on this new site. As usual, we've linked to Esquire Classics at our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Tyler, welcome to Read the podcast.
0: Hey there, how you
2: doing?
1: Uh well, let's start off by talking uh about Esquire Classic uh in general. Uh so basically, can you talk about what that site is?
2: Yeah. Uh it is the brand new digital archive of every single uh issue, article, page ad that Esquire ha- has ever published uh since our first issue uh in autumn 1933 and uh you know it's close to a quarter million pages, and it took us about a year to create uh from actually shipping out the uh the actual raw print magazines to digitizing them to now we're uh you know still doing some tagging and and other stuff, and then we're also kind of build, building the actual full site out and thinking through uh how it it should operate
1: so uh, can you talk about how this kind of came about like uh how how does Somebody decide we want to have a quarter million pages of an old of of Esquire or any magazine um, up online.
2: Yeah, so um, you know I've been at Esquire for for a long time. I guess almost twelve years now, and I took a year off a little while ago, um, and I got a, a Neiman Fellowship, and, and really spent the year kind of thinking about new ways that we could um, re- revisit kind of our greatest stuff in the past and and, and revitalize it and refresh it. And uh, I got back almost a year ago, and so this has kind of been percolating since then, but um, you know, in that time also, we've done some other kind of cool stuff where we took uh, our uh, What I've Learned interviews, and we've been doing What I've Learned with with amazing people for about the last 10 or 12 years, and I realized that there was just this audio sitting around on on our old kind of uh, cassettes at at times and also on on other recorders, and could we do something cool with those? So the first big project we did here was we took 10 of those, and we uh, teamed with an amazing animator uh, or a uh, animation uh, production company uh, run by a guy named David Gerlach uh, and also an illustrator um, named Joe McKendry, who's fantastic. And we made 10 little animations of these old interviews and we built this microsite on Medium and, and it was awesome. So that was kind of the first real foray of how do we take... Old um, material and revitalize it, and, and that was that was interesting. And um, and then also, you know, while we knew we were working on the archive, we really kind of started with with what, were, what was called Esquire Classics, and that in many ways was for us to start thinking about how do we reuse these old stories. And and so we would figure out, you know, a great kind of time when a story would be most timely, and we would, uh, you know. We, we 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 would uh, acquire the the rights to the story if if we didn't have them already. And then we put them up on a very clean news site and just kind of put the stories first when they mattered most. So the first one we did was Gary Will's amazing story uh, about going to MLK's funeral. And we posted that uh, on the anniversary of MLK's death. Uh, Beginning of baseball season, we did uh, our famous uh, Ted Williams story Mm -hmm. from uh, Richard Ben Kramer. And we did uh, Gay Telly's on DiMaggio. So again, taking our greatest stories from the past and kind of presenting them in kind of Times when they when they really can can come to the surface and and matter the most. Mm -hmm.
1: I think um, one of the really cool things is you can uh, read a lot of these really great stories, like um, you know, or Gay Talese's Frank Sinatra has a cold. Mm -hmm and some of those pieces, you can read them as they appear in the magazine.
2: Yeah, oh. and so that was really, so I guess I, I kind of stopped there. So that was kind of the first step with, with the classics. And then um, getting to now, which the actual, it's a little the classic, the new archive, uh, which is, is launching right now, was, um, you know, those stories, uh, it has those pages as they appeared. A lot of, a lot of them do have, have text versions, but one of the big things we've done is um, we are actually presenting these stories uh, with their original context, mm-hmm. and sometimes a new context. So that means when you read uh, Sinatra Has a Cold, you see those pages, but below it you also see our little uh, backstage with, with Esquire about how uh, Telly's actually did his reporting, and you see our, our letters to, to the editor. And then you can also read, same place, a, uh, What I've Learned with, uh, with, 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 with Gay. So it's, again, adding new context to, the, to these old gems. Mm-hmm.
1: How important is this for magazines today to be to be thinking digitally uh like like you are you all are with with the cl- with this classic website
2: you know i think it's it's incredibly important um it's also now we're trying to figure out uh the best and, and new ways to- to, to do it, um, you know, I've been here long enough that I saw, you know, Esquire's initial you know website or two that had kind of a, a few articles on it, and we've gone through different iterations and different things online and kind of not online, and and now we're at a point where we have you know a very kind of robust robust website, but it tends to be, um, you know, a lot of articles that are are written you know by a separate web staff and not really what people thought about as the old kind of famous classic Esquire stuff, and so you know, we knew we needed to kind of take these old stories and uh, revitalize them. But the question was, how do you do that and how do you make that into actually its own business? And and that's one of the main things I think I, I, I would underline here is, you know, this archive itself is very much an experiment. Uh, it is not free, it's paid. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a few bucks a month, and we think that's worth it to read, you know, 30 Hemingway stories mm-hmm. and, you know, 20 Fitzgerald stories and Steinbeck and J.D. Salinger and Philip Roth. I mean, it, it's all there, um, and it's also there without any pop ups. Um, it's there. It's in a great form to be read and enjoy it.
1: Mm-hmm. I know I read somewhere that you said kind of what you've been spending a lot of your time doing now is is figuring figuring out new ways to tell stories as well as how to sell them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this obviously seems like one of those those ways. Um, can you talk a little bit about um like how how is that going i mean I, the 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 classic site has not mm-hmm. um you know, we'll be brand new here soon. Right. Um, but I know Esquire has done some other things uh, in, in the past with some stories. I know Chris Jones is out of or er, uh, His story about the astronaut. Right. Who spent a year, uh, who was going to spend a year in space. You um, mm-hmm. did something different using uh, uh, Atavist or Creativist with that. Yeah. How has that been going for the You uh, know, the really, I
2: would just say, I think they've all, um, you know, I'm trying to think, when our first paywall experiment
1: I think Luke Dietrich's uh, piece. Yeah, on... with,
2: with Dietrich, and yeah. you know, and again, I think that that did well and that story. Um, before we actually took the paywall down, would still sell, you mm-hmm. know, a few a day. So if you look at it that way, if you're making you know six dollars a day on, you know, two people purchasing a story, that's far more than than you're going to make on you know 100 clicks. Mm -hmm. So you know that for us showed there was a market here. On the same note, um, having one story, like whether that or whether it's Chris Jones, uh, behind a paywall is extremely hard. And um, you know we also did an experiment uh, about this time last year where we. we did a new version of uh, The Falling Man that we actually built out with um, Creativist. And we made it so that you had to donate to the James Foley Foundation to read it. And we had a new intro from, from, from uh, Tom Gino there. And that story did fantastic. Uh, you know, it made five figures uh, that, that, that was donated to, to the uh, Foley Foundation. Uh, and people could actually donate what they wanted. So, you know, did that tell us there was a full business? And, and, and do, do, do we know the full business plan right now? No. It, it just showed that this stuff is possible, and we have to and we have to kind of figure it out. And you know, I think that that's the same thing here with this new archive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, advertising itself in terms of, of online is not going to support for everything, and 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 it's not going to support you know uh, long term the great. Work that, that that Esquire has done. So we need to figure out new ways of bringing in money to uh, support that, right. and also that means building you know sites and platforms that people actually want, and and putting forth articles that people actually want to read. And so this is all kind of moving in that direction. Okay. Um, you know, so to answer your question a little, a little bit more, I don't know how this is all going to work out. I know we uh, are launching with a, you know a certain set of prices, and we're going to see kind of how, how how stuff goes, and we're going to have to market it really hard, mm-hmm. um, and we'll probably adjust, you know, if things aren't, aren't working great, or maybe they're working great, and we'll keep going forward. Um, it's all kind of a big learning process, and that's not just for Esquire. that That's really for everyone now, mm-hmm. and that's the uh, best thing we can, we, we can do.
1: I think I read uh, somewhere that you, uh, maybe you, a piece you wrote for Neiman, Storyboard, uh, that you kind of worked or started working with Northeastern North University's Media Innovation Program mm-hmm. um, on this project. Is that correct? And if so, how did that come about?
2: Um, so I would say uh, it was really on kind of the project that, that, that I've been working with that with Esquire in terms mm-hmm. of thinking of new ways to uh, tell stories. And, um, you know, I had met uh, Jeff Howe, who runs that program. He was a uh, Neiman Fellow a few years before me, and we had a great time kind of chatting in in Cambridge and um we came up with this stupid idea you know he has all these really smart students who really want to experiment and they don't really have material to actually experiment with and i said okay we have all these amazing stories but we could really use some smart you know engineers and, and designers to kind of mess around and, and kind of show us new things we 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 could actually uh, you know do do with them so you know from there we we outline kind of the first um, esquire course and we did it uh... last spring and, and it was pretty interesting we the kids did some some very cool stuff um... you know there are some bumps along the way in figuring out the best way to kind of make our stories fresh and then kind of uh... to actually work with the students but overall you know i think they gave the course great uh... reviews and um... you know we're talking about doing it again uh... next spring and um... alessio uh, who works with Jeff over there, um, actually is, uh, the, he's been editing day-to-day classics, and he uh, will, is, is going to be editing classic as well. So there's kind of, a, of a, a tight family there.
1: Great. Right. Um, there is so much on that site to read. Um, do you have a favorite old Esquire piece when you look it, through all of that stuff?
2: <laughs> you know, it, it's funny you ask that, Um you know, it's just been like the weird, I wouldn't say I have a favorite that I've said, oh, you know, this is the best piece I've found, but there's stuff, like if you look like, like the July 1960 issue, you have, you know, Baldwin on Fifth Avenue uptown. You have Capote. You have Diane Arbus's first um, photo portfolio in, in Esquire. I think you have Gay in there. I mean, it's just amazing. And that's kind of one of the cool things is, you know, we've set up the site. I mean, one, one of the real ideas we had was we couldn't just build an archive, like a giant library, where you get locked in, you're like, well, what do I read? We really had to curate it the same way that we have to curate each issue of the magazine. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that meant that we built this this homepage and something that no archive has done before, which is really, you know, you have the story, and we can kind of tell you why to read the story now. And we can also group stories. So when you come to the page, we're going to say, okay, you know, today, you know, th- this week, uh, Colbert, Start his show here 's five stories here 's letterman here 's leno here's here 's colbert um we 're also doing that just here 's the greatest features here 's the greatest fiction stories, and those are all going to change kind of as we go forward and you know, we're also going to be having tons of people offer their own reading lists. I actually just saw Charlie Pierce in the office. He's going to offer our, us one soon, and, and Tom Denotis, And we're also going to go to other friends of the magazine and, and fiction writers like Colin McCann and say, Colin, you know, what are your eight favorite stories from from Esquire's history? And he'll write a little thing, and then we'll kind of have those out there. So, you know, I, I can't tell you I found the one thing is the greatest. i just been more amazed by the weird things. Um, we saw T. Lawrence wrote for us years ago. Um, Nabokov wrote for us under his, uh, his his pen name, so so a lot of stuff in there. If you just dig through, it's it's, it's pretty amazing.
1: Have you found yourself almost? It's almost like a history lesson to go oh, back it, and look through the you know just looking through it, the way you have them broken down by decades. Yeah, and then you can go by year. Um, how much about Esquire have you learned in this process?
2: You know, one of the of the things, and, and I'm guessing you haven't gotten your 1,000 um, issue yet, which should be coming out soon um i'm
1: eagerly waiting for it to show so, up in my mailbox so. i mean
2: we we basically started this project right around the time granger you know the editor here decided he, he wanted to do that we said okay we need to have the archive come out with that issue mm-hmm. and so you know for the first time i think in granger's time here we actually decided to embrace the past mm-hmm. um and the entire issue is the encyclopedia of of um, esquire mm-hmm. and so really it is um it's American history through the prism of, of the actual magazine, and uh, we did this really cool thing where we teamed up with Shazam, who everyone kind of uses in the bar to kind of hear that song, and Shazam now is working with paper um, so about i think fifty or sixty spots in the magazine when we actually talk about um you know Arbus or baldwin or um I think, of, of, of the uh, Blue Box, a uh, famous story by by Ron uh, Rosenbaum, you can actually take your phone, shazam that page, and it'll take you directly to that actual story in the archive. Um, it's really cool. It's kind of this tying of the, of the past to, to, to the present, which d- really kind of pulls into, into one of the main ideas of the issue of, of the um, eternal now, of how we're in this time where you can actually access everything at once. And the old becomes new again, and that's really kind of threaded through that whole issue. Um, you know, really the history of America, the history of Esquire, but also, all these old stories are really present and actually important again.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I went back and looked at the very first issue, and of mm-hmm. course, one of the first stories you see is Ernest Hemingway. Yep. Um, and you just, you just, it's almost like working your way through um, all these literary giants. You know, through through the decades. Um, oh yeah. And it's it's fascinating. Um, mm-hmm
2: yeah we actually in that new issue i sent um we sent Stephen Marsh to uh, Cuba to kind of take on Hemingway again and kind of understand um you know his importance in, in the founding of, of 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 Esquire i mean he really was kind of the the foundation of it um and also you know from then you just saw him getting you know torn apart now as kind of the whitest most whale uh most uh male uh you know uh, book writer there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of following that trajectory, um, it's, it's a pretty cool piece. And even there, you kind of are talking about, about the old stories and the uh, new. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what's been the most exciting part of this entire project for you?
2: Um, you know, I, I think it's been um, kind of building something that actually wasn't there. I mean, we used to... There's a closet. I mean, it's a literal closet by the freight elevators. And it's just with old magazines that were kind of rotting and that was the actual archive and you know now it's here and it will be here and that, that's pretty cool I mean to take a lot of these stories that literally only existed in print and to actually make them so so they, so they, so they, can, they can be read everywhere um, is, is pretty cool
1: I know uh, I'm, cu- I'm curious as, as, as looking through everything like how did you actually get did you scan in every page or can you talk about how you actually got them into a digital form
2: Sure. So, um, you know, we first had to make sure we had every single issue. We were, we were missing about 12, so we sourced those, um, and then and they were all sent off, Um to a a company where they actually, the the spines are actually cut from from each issue, and they scan each page. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then those pages, um, you know, they basically, there becomes data about each page. So they're not just plain PDFs. Each page is marked in terms of of, of what the actual headline is, what the byline is, what the um, subtitle is. Uh, whether if there's multiple stories on a page, there's multiple boxes. So all of that data then goes into a giant database and um, kind of ingested into this bigger system, uh, so that you can actually search the stories and, and, all, and all those things. Um, you know, one of the most complicated parts of all this was that metadata, and um, you know, we have a team of about five people going back and going through that data because even though the scanners are great today. Um, you know, simple words aren't picked up. So a word like "burn," B-U-R-N, is often seen by the computer as "bum," mm-hmm. B-U-M. So you got to go in and you have to actually hand correct. So it's just a gargantuan task to go into. I think we did, you know, a rough calculation somewhere around like you know, 500 million words <laughs> to actually have to go in uh, and kind of fix and copy edit. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's just a lot of different moving pieces, and uh, it's been a a big a big task.
1: Okay. Well, this is launched. Uh, so now what next?
2: Uh, <laughs> what well, next? We got to get people there and we got to see how it does. Um, you know, I'll say one of my big lessons from this past year was, you know, you can have the greatest articles ever. You can have, you know, Junior Johnson by Tom Wolf and you can have Nora Ephron and you can have Hemingway and all that stuff. But there is so much online right now. Um, it is really hard to break through. And and that is one of those lessons that, um, you know, before when I was purely, you know, just doing kind of print stuff and, and editing, you just kind of didn't want to even, use, oh, you know, if it's really good, it'll do great. And, you know, uh, now on this other side, you see you can have the greatest writers in the world, but you still got to figure out how to get those, people to, how to get people actually to kinda of engage with it and actually want it. So that'll kinda of be you know the big kind of step two challenge with this and um seeing it, you know, grow and thrive and kind of morph and um you know and that's it for now.
1: So uh anything else cool going on at Esquire?
2: Yeah. Um you know we're actually about to launch a uh Esquire classic podcast and uh we just wrapped the second uh podcast yesterday. And, and it's a similar idea to a lot of, of, of what we've been doing with the site of, of how do we take these old amazing stories and refresh them. And, uh, you know, the first one is, uh, is with Tom Gineau, uh, and about his story, Falling Man. And the podcast is, is hosted by David uh, Brancaccio. And it, it's been really cool. We have a live reader come in and they read parts of the story. And then Brancaccio and, and Tom in, in that episode, you know, they kind of discuss it as the story's read and kind of what the story meant then and, and what it means now. So so we did that on the first one, and we've uh, got two more uh, that, we're, that we're actually going to be recording uh, next week or so, and that'll launch uh, October 1st. So we're really excited. We've been uh, working with a, P, a, PR, a public radio exchange on that, and uh, they've been amazing. So we'll see another uh, project to, to uh, work on.
1: Well, Tyler, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to talk about Esquire Classics, and good luck, and uh, hopefully many, many, many people will be going <laughs> on and, uh, and signing up.
2: Cool. Well, no, thank you uh, for enjoying it, and uh, you know, take care.
1: I've been talking with Tyler Cabot. Cabot is an articles editor at Esquire magazine. He is also directing the magazine's research and development efforts. That includes the launch of Esquire Classic, We've provided links to everything we've talked about on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. We're going to take a short break right now. We'll be back with more Gangry the Podcast.
0: Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools, and they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu jdm.
1: Now for part two of the show. I've long wanted to have audio versions of entire stories on the podcast, but had never found the time or the right story to try this out on. Then, back in April, I wrote The Ghosts I Run With for SB Nation Longform. A short time after that piece ran, I went ahead and recorded it here in our studio at WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University. The ghost I run with is a piece of memoir, and is about many of the people I came to know when I had leukemia as a teenager. Unfortunately, too many of those people died of their own diseases. That's what the piece is about. So without further ado, here is the first full-length audio story on Gangry the Podcast. Creech. The name escaped my lips somewhere in the third mile of a five-mile run. It was a name I had been trying to think of, off and on, for the better part of a decade. The last name of my nurse, Janet, from Viking Street in Orville, Ohio. Janet brought me sausage biscuits from McDonald's just about every morning because it was the only thing I would eat. She was typically my nurse on first shift. She had short brown hair and was about the same age as my mom, and so she felt very motherly to me. Those things I could remember, but not her last name. Until now. She died sometime after my initial 70-day residency at Akron Children's Hospital, which started on January 3, 1991, but during my more than two years of chemotherapy and radiation as an outpatient, time spent eradicating all the leukemic cells in my 15- to 17-year-old body. She died of cancer after years of caring for kids with cancer. But for a long time, I couldn't remember her last name. I wanted to know her name, her full name, because I felt it was important. I imagined one day reaching out to her family and telling them how much she meant to me when I was near death. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't know, or rather couldn't drag, her last name from the recesses of my brain. It had escaped me for so long, until that run, when I imagined she was just behind me, to the left, running with me keeping me company as I churned along the black ribbon of asphalt that cuts between two cornfields in northeast Wayne County, Ohio. There are others. Todd, who lost a leg to osteosarcoma but runs with me nonetheless. He fell off a horse once and his prosthetic leg got caught in the stirrup. Just before he was dragged to death, he reached up and unhooked his fake leg and tumbled down. Then he sat up and laughed like a maniac like almost being killed by falling off a horse had been the greatest and funniest thing ever to happen in his life. There's also Melissa. We had the same disease, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and the same doctor, Dr. Alex Kufis. She died. I didn't. I think about her a lot when I run. When she runs beside me, I ponder the reasons, if there are any, for the way fate shook out. Our roles very easily could have been reversed, and sometimes I feel like they should have been. And there's Dr. Kufis himself. He died of bile duct cancer just weeks before I graduated from college, and just after his son Costa, who plays for the Memphis Grizzlies, turned 9 years old. I've only ever cried at the news of one death, and it was his. He was the most caring man I've ever known. I think about his raw red hands as they felt my lower abdomen every week on trips to the clinic. About the way he would chuckle at my stupid attempts at humor. The way he told me he barely got into college. A lie, but one meant to keep me from freaking out about missing classes in school. And the way he always said my heart sounded strong right after putting the cold stethoscope to my chest. He probably told me my heart was strong maybe a hundred times, and I've long wondered if he meant the organ-pumping blood in my chest or something more. There are more, of course. You can't survive a children's cancer ward and not remember the kids you knew who didn't make it. Terry, Laura Joe, Shelby, Little John, all of them wonderful in their own right and worthy of being remembered forever. All of them ghosts now, wisps of light running beside me mile after mile after mile. But this too is true, stories can save us. Those are the first two sentences of Tim O'Brien's short story, The Lives of the Dead, and his book, The Things They Carried. The story mostly centers around the narrator remembering his nine-year-old self and a girl he loved, Linda, who died of a brain tumor before her 10th birthday. There's a scene in the story when a kid from school tells the narrator that Linda had kicked the bucket, and at first he didn't understand. It's hard the first time you've ever been told someone you care about has died. You don't understand, and then you think it's the joke, and then you refuse to believe, like there's been some cosmic mistake. Timmy brings Linda back to life by dreaming of her, but the adult narrator Tim brings her back to life by writing about her. I think about this too when I run. I think about Janet's kind brown eyes, and Melissa's fearlessness, and Todd's craziness, and Dr. Kufus's dedication and love and warmth, and then I ask myself, how have you kept them alive? Because that's the bargain in the end, right? That's the answer to the question, why did I survive? Or at least the answer I can live with, one that is better than no reason at all. I started running a couple years ago. Until then, I had lived most of my adult life as someone who sat around doing nothing, a lot. Before leukemia, like a lot of kids, I was convinced I would be a professional athlete After leukemia, I knew that wasn't ever going to happen. Once I got out of high school, where I played baseball and basketball despite undergoing chemotherapy treatments, I stopped competing altogether. Then one summer, my wife and I took the kids to the beach. When we got back, I saw photos of a man I didn't know. A man who weighed more than 200 pounds. I didn't want to pay for a gym membership. So instead, I bought a cheap pair of shoes at a department store and started going out for a very slow run every morning. My initial goal was to make it to the interstate, which is just over a mile from my house. It took me about two weeks to make it that far without walking. Then I wanted to make it back to my house. All the while, I had music playing in my ears. I had a little bit of everything stashed on my iPhone. Green Day, Katy Perry, Michael Jackson, The Strokes, even my favorite local band, The Womacs. This included my first half marathon which i finished despite leg cramps in both legs at the 10 mile mark i imagined that the reason i was able to run now versus the handful of times i had tried earlier in my life and quit was because of the music listening to something to distract me from the pain then after about a year and a half one day i woke up and went for a run without the music i don't know why i just didn't grab my phone before heading out i ran four or five miles that morning it was warm and slightly breezy. I remember running along the mostly flat, straight road that I live on and hearing the wind rustle the tall grasses that lined the ditch. I remember falling into a trance as my feet slapped the pavement and I breathed, out, out, in, out, out, in. That's when the ghosts appeared. Melissa lived in a town just south of where I grew up. I met her at Camp CHOPS, which stands for Hematology and Oncology Patients and Staff, a weekend summer camp. The kids who had cancer got to hang out with the people who took care of them, away from Akron Children's. I went in 1991 as a patient and spent a good portion of that weekend hanging out in the cabin. One night I listened to the NBA championship, Bulls vs. Lakers, on the radio. While all the other campers were making ice cream sundaes in the dining hall, I was listening to Michael Jordan start construction on his legacy. In 1992, I was a counselor in training, as was Melissa when we first met. She was a couple years older than me and had an olive complexion and tight, short, curly hair, the kind that was starting to grow back, to reclaim space it had once held but lost. She was cute, and because of that, and because I desperately needed someone who knew exactly what I had gone through in the last year and a half, I instantly developed a crush on her. We all hung out with some other kids, including Ben, who was the son of my clinic nurse Pam, and Kim and Sharon, both teenagers who had long ago defeated their childhood cancers. Melissa and I were still in the thick of it, though. We still battled baldness and the inability to walk without tripping, our feet unable to navigate even the smallest contours in a sidewalk because they had been deadened by massive doses of Vincristin. We still vomited our brains out after getting chemo and missed extensive amounts of school. We hung out a handful of times outside of Camp Chops, too. We talked on the phone occasionally. I don't know what we talked about, although I suspect it was probably regular teenage stuff. There was nothing worse, we felt, than being considered not normal. We wanted to be normal more than anything in the world. We wanted to be teenagers, not teenagers with leukemia. We got better. She went off to college, and then so did I. We didn't stay in touch after that. Why? I don't know. I had her phone number pinned on my bulletin board, and it went with me to college, but I never picked up the phone, partly because she was part of my past, the past I was trying to shed now that I was in a place where nobody knew my illness. Once I got to college, I was normal again, and I suspect she felt the same way. She didn't call either. I think calling one another would acknowledge that we were not, indeed, normal. We were different. We were still teenagers with leukemia. We would always be the kid walking like a stork, picking our knees up high so our f- dead feet wouldn't stumble. We would always be the teenager who is bald, the kid who is skinny, the child who knew and was not afraid of death. We would always be teenagers with leukemia. Then I went home one weekend and picked up the newspaper and saw her obituary. There's another reason I started running beyond hoping to lose weight, which I did, 40 pounds in less than six months. That was because I would like to live long enough to see my two kids, my 10-year-old son Emery and my 7-year-old daughter Lily, become adults. Childhood cancer survivors are twice as likely to develop a secondary cancer in their lifetime, primarily because most of the drugs and treatments used in the 1990s to treat childhood cancer were themselves carcinogenic. And if they don't cause cancer, they often make the heart the bones, the lungs, and just about every other part of the body weaker and more prone to later in life health issues. Through my 20s and even into my 30s, I didn't really care about any of that. Partly it was because I didn't know about that stuff, but having kids of my own made me greedy. I survived having leukemia when I was 15, and now, more than 20 years later, I was struck with a worry. Who knows if it was rational or not that I was going to die a young death and I wanted more time than that. I figured the best way to make that happen was to get in shape. And so I ran. In 2013, I ran 617 miles. In 2014, I ran another 672 miles. I want to run 1000 in a year. And then after that, I want to run 2000. Even now, as I sit here in the best shape of my life, Able to slip on a pair of running shoes and head out the door and knock off 8 miles without even thinking about it, I still worry about dying young. I don't fear it, and I don't like the fact that it is possible. I have long felt that I am living on borrowed time. I started writing about being sick almost immediately after I stopped being sick, or rather, once I had finished my treatments. The first thing I wrote about having leukemia was for a scholarship contest with Guidepost magazine. It was a religious publication, so I sprinkled a lot of praise gods and I really think I'm a miracle. I didn't win. In college, I kept leukemia to myself for the most part, not wanting it to color people's perception of me, but I wrote about it a lot. Then in my final semester as an undergraduate student, I took a creative writing workshop. I wrote about it in that class and I kept writing about it on the side. In grad school, I wrote a memoir about having leukemia. In my various jobs as a reporter, I have always found ways to write about kids with cancer or myself with cancer. I just can't seem to not write about it. I've thought long and hard about why it keeps circling back to that time in my life that I had leukemia and I never had an answer. Part of it, I realize now that I'm older, stems from the fact that I've been trying to make sense of what happened. Sufferers of trauma do that. They weave what happened to them into a narrative that allows them to see a larger meaning. I've just never been able to see what that larger meaning was. At least I wasn't able to until I started running and my ghost started running with me i have been writing about that time in my life to keep Melissa and Dr. Kufis and Janet and everyone else alive, to let them live forever in words, a place that cancer can't touch. We had a support group at Akron Children's Hospital for kids with cancer that met, I think, on Wednesday nights. There were some longer-term survivors, late teens who were no longer in danger of relapsing in the group, and then there were those of us who were currently undergoing treatment. It was something I looked forward to more than anything else in my life, which at that point consisted mostly of sitting in my bed at home and numbing myself each day by watching the same old reruns on television, I Love Lucy, The Beverly Hillbillies, Gilligan's Island. The meetings often coincided with a trip to the clinic for me to receive my outpatient chemotherapy. After spending two or three hours in the treatment room, having dangerous chemicals pumped into my body, Mom and I would head over to the Ronald McDonald house and watch TV until later in the evening. Then I would head back to the hospital, somewhere on the fourth floor where the support group met, close to where I had lived for 70 days in the winter and spring of 1991. The group was led by a social worker named Nancy. She was the first person I met at Akron Children's the day I arrived there. Kind and soft-spoken, she had a round face and soft blonde hair. She laughed, or maybe chuckled is a better word, at everything that wasn't specifically related to our illnesses. Her laugh was always quiet, but it was real, and something that was sorely needed on a childhood cancer ward. She spent a lot of time in my room, talking to me, talking to my parents, making sure we knew that if we ever needed anything— Anything, we simply had to ask. I don't remember specifically what we talked about in that support group. I don't remember how many times we met, although I do remember thinking it wasn't often enough. I remember eating snacks. I remember going to a lab and having the technicians show us how they do blood tests. I remember one of the girls, Shelby or maybe Laura Jo, talking about going to prom. I remember sitting next to Kurt, who loved basketball, and across from Tim, who was a swimmer. I remember Terry being wheeled into the room in her hospital bed. I remember feeling at home with these people, my tribe of sick kids. Earlier, before we were a support group, Tim, the swimmer, came up with an idea for a board game for kids with cancer. He called it Road to Remission. The players drew cards and then moved plastic game pieces around a board, either forward or backward, depending on what the card said. When I was still a resident of the fourth floor at Akron Children's, Nancy brought in a stack of index cards and a marker and asked me to write stuff down on the cards. She told me to write about good things that happened to you when you're in the hospital, battling cancer as a kid, and the bad things. And then she told me to assign each of them a number of spaces to move forward or backward. I imagine I wrote mostly bad things down. I had a rough time in the hospital. I developed an infection, probably bacterial meningitis, on my brain which is what kept me in there for so long. I became severely depressed because I didn't seem like I was ever going to go home. I had gotten to the point where I was fine with death, to where I didn't fear it anymore. I probably wrote about feeding tubes getting clogged and physical therapists making you walk down the hallway and nurses waking you up in the middle of the night. There were good things though. Nurses like Janet who brought me sausage biscuits and doctors like Dr. Kufus who really, truly cared. There was another nurse, John, who gave me a Ricky Henderson rookie card. I hope I wrote that stuff down too. Obviously, there were enough good things written down so that the players could actually make it to remission. It wasn't the kind of game you could ever lose. The point was to get everyone to talk about their experiences. But sometimes, I wonder if we wrote too many good things down. If maybe not every player should have made it to remission. At least not if we wanted it to be a realistic portrayal of the lives of the game's creators. The hospital turned it into a full-fledged board game. We even shot a commercial. Good Morning America heard about the game and did a segment on it. Tim flew to New York City to talk about it with host Joan London. Then London read the names of the other creators and showed our photos, including mine. But then the caveat. Five of the eight creators had died. Only Tim, Michael, and myself reached remission. And then, not really. Many, many years later, I was thinking about Tim, probably after a run. I called Pam, the nurse who called to tell me that Dr. Kufis had died, and the one person at Akron Children's I have managed to stay in touch with. I asked her where Tim was and what he was doing. Oh, Matt, she said. He had been a ghost for quite some time. I ran my first marathon the Akron Marathon, in September 2014, raising funds for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's team in training and collected more than $1,500 for blood cancer research. And I chose Akron because the race finishes in the shadow of Akron Children's Hospital. The finish line is home plate in Canal Park, home of the Akron Rubber Ducks, a Double A minor league baseball team. As you make your way into the stadium, if you look up and to the right, you see the blue and white logo of Akron Children's perched up on a parking garage that overlooks the baseball stadium by a footbridge to the place I called home so long ago. Around mile 20, as we ran through a gorgeous tree-lined neighborhood, we came upon a water stop. I was starting to slow. My friend Stuart and I had been keeping about a 9 minute 45 second pace throughout the race. "'but my brain was starting to go. "'I'd only run 20 miles once before, three weeks earlier. "'I was hitting a wall. "'I walked up to the water stop and reached out for a cup. "'I recognized her face immediately, "'one that hadn't changed a bit "'since the first day I met her nearly 24 years earlier. "'Nancy!' I shouted. "'That's me,' she said. "'I don't think she recognized me, "'and in my 20th mile stupor, I never told her who I was.' I imagine it probably dawned on her later, but the recognition for me was immediate and so I hugged her and probably freaked her out. And then I moved on, energized, feeling once more that everything would be alright, that I would make it to the finish line. My energy lasted about three more miles. That's when my legs cramped. Three miles from the finish line, again. I told Stuart to go on. He had been battling an Achilles issue and slowing down made his foot and leg hurt even worse. I started walking and stretched. I got going again, and then, toward the end, was coming down South Main Street, toward Canal Park. I looked off to the right and saw the hospital. My room and the place our support group met had long since been demolished and replaced with a big, new fancy hospital floor. But I could see where my hospital room had once been, where I had once looked out a window from my hospital bed onto the streets of Akron, streets I was now running. I thought about those days and nights when my mom or dad begged me to get out of bed, to take a walk down the hallway, just to sit up, to care, to want to live. I thought about the nights I couldn't sleep, and the nights I could. I thought about the day I was supposed to have brain surgery to remove that infection, and how that surgery was called off at the last minute. I thought about how, when I got out of the hospital, I couldn't walk from my bedroom to the kitchen without getting exhausted, without feeling dead. As my feet shuffled along the road, I thought of Melissa and how we used to walk like storks. I thought of Dr. Kufis and all the times he told me my heart was strong, and how, on this day, it had powered me through more than 25 miles, and how it had just a little bit more work to do, and I realized that it really was strong, both physically and metaphorically. And I thought about how I missed him a great deal. I missed all of them so, so much. I imagined they were all with me, some of them lining the streets with the other spectators who were screaming and yelling and holding up signs, and others like Melissa and Dr. Kufis who were running at my side, with me at every step. My feet plodded on along the Akron pavement. The hospital disappeared behind other tall buildings in downtown, and then I made a turn, and then another turn, and I was in the stadium. I didn't look up at the hospital. I looked forward, toward the finish line. I ran as hard as I could and I crossed it almost sprinting. I walked through the chute and turned right and then I saw it. The hospital. I took a few more steps, but then I had to stop and sit down. I needed to look at the hospital and think. I was exhausted and needed to just stop after more than 4 hours and 44 minutes of forward movement. I used to joke after a run that I felt like I was dead, but I stopped making that joke because it is ridiculous. Every time I finish any run, no matter how exhausted I might be, I feel more alive than I ever have in my life. I remember one recurring dream I had during my 70 days as a resident of Akron Children's. I remember it because of how alive it made me feel, how strong and powerful, at a time when I couldn't even get out of bed to take a bath. In the dream, I am running down a hill behind my old elementary school. I'm carrying a baseball glove and a ball, and I'm running fast. I used to see this dream as one about baseball because of the glove and ball and because baseball was my sport, but in the dream I never actually got to a field to play ball. I just kept running. I've reframed that dream as one about running now, and I think about that dream whenever I run, remembering how I wish I could just keep going forever. And I think about my ghosts, and think if I keep running and writing forever, I can keep them alive. They can stay right here beside me, mile after mile after mile, word by word. We're going to finish up the show this week with required reading. This week's required reading comes from D. Rossi, Rosie worked in the corporate world for twenty years as a writer, editor, analyst, and product manager before striking out on her own as a freelance writer earlier this year. She maintains a blog called Life Among Humans. We've linked to that blog on our website, www.gangrythepodcast.com.
3: If you grew up in the early eighties, Bruce Springsteen and the picture of his jeans clad butt were everywhere. A seemingly endless stream of hit singles played on radio stations across the dial. You couldn't get away from him. And if you grew up in New Jersey, your heart swelled with pride at his success. The local boy whose genius was recognized back in 1974 had finally become a superstar, a kind of national institution. But by 1992, the halo had rusted to the point that an Entertainment Weekly cover story asking, whatever happened to Bruce? It evoked wistful sighs, but no real surprise or outrage. It's with this 1992 cover story that Brian Ives begins his article titled, How Bruce Springsteen Got His Groove Back. Young musicians can be counted on to rebel against national institutions. So in that sense, Springsteen's decline was probably inevitable. But there's more to the story. Ives lists a couple of factors that tested even New Jersey fans' loyalty abandonment of the cherished e Street band, relocation from New Jersey to Los Angeles, of all places. However, the value of this article isn't in its explanation of why Bruce became unhip. It's in the detailed exploration of where he's been since then and how he's become a respected elder statesman, someone revered by the hip and popular, people like Rage Against the Machine's Tom Morello and Arcade Fire's Wynn Butler, without changing a thing in his approach to music. Bruce's stubborn integrity and refusal to toe anyone's line but his own have made him a different kind of national institution. He's now a timeless icon. Ives's article is an insightful look at how an artist goes from the heights of commercial success to the lows of unhipness and finally to the state of everlasting cool.
1: Just a reminder that you too can get involved with the podcast. We want to know what you're reading. Send us an email describing a piece that you think everyone should read. We'll pick the best and record a segment for a future show. You can reach us at gangrythepodcast at gmail.com. Well, that's it for this episode of Gangry the Podcast. Thanks for listening. As usual, you can find us in iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also find us on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is a free service that lets you listen to podcasts on demand. Get the app at stitcher.com or in the app stores. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangre the podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis.